Hello and welcome to the Taking Social Stock podcast. This is episode two, and in this episode, we're mainly going to be discussing an article Heather's picked out regarding California wildfires and more so the impact that that might have financially. So Heather, uh, tell us a little bit about the article. It is called Federal Report Warns of Financial Havoc from Climate Change. It's a New York Times article, and I chose this because we you really would have to be living under a rock to have not heard about the wildfires that are consuming the West right now. And going back to what you and I have talked about a lot, I um, wanted to look at something from a lens that is not my own. So although I'm very interested in the wildfires for reasons that don't specifically focus on the economic impact, that was a, a side that I need to learn more about. So I chose this article. Okay. So what is the gist of the article then? So can you kind of give me a, some of the highlights or high levels here? It hones in on this report that was created by a bunch of analysts uh, that was co-written by a bunch of analysts from all different sorts of sectors and backgrounds from academics to people who are engaged in the day-to-day in climate related issues to people who work at oil companies. And they come together to say, hey, financially, if we don't get global warming under control, we're going to be paying big time and we have to really pay attention to this now so we can recover from it. Or yeah. economically, we're, we're going to be in a bad place. Potentially, yeah. Of course, looking at the people who are part of that committee, you have some people from, I think it was Morgan Stanley, but two, the two oil companies were two of the big oil companies, and they're allowed to write on this. And they have, uh, what's their name, Cargill, the agricultural company, because they're more looking at how this is going to impact the commodities market. So the commodities market is similar to the stock market, to kind of summarize it, but they trade on natural resources. So it's going to be metals, ores, and then livestock and agricultural products. So it's the raw materials that go into the processing lines, which of course, one of the biggest is oil. Of course, they are a little biased going into that report. Yeah, well, I want to hear more from you about that. Do you? I have some other things to touch on um, in terms of why it interested me, but if you want to share a little bit more about the bias, what it, would you mind starting with that? Yeah, so I mean, obviously they have academics and they had a whole lot of people involved in writing this report. I don't see if I have my notes here, but later on in the report, apparently they kind of say like, hey, but this is, you know, we need to be careful and figure out ways to finance these initiatives because it would be really bad for the oil industry. But they, of course, have the major players that could be affected by it. So the agricultural side and the oil side involved in the writing the report, which is also, if you notice the committee that runs the report, it's, I think, three Republicans and two Democrats. So obviously one side has more sway in this report. But they did unanimously agree that the impact of global warming or climate change is a net negative and it needs to be addressed. One thing I noticed in the report is they uh, cite the 2017 NASA report that came out about climate change pretty early on. So it's their state of player kind of trying to set the basis of what the report is about. And they quote the line from the 2017 NASA report that said, "Extremely, it's extremely likely that human influence has been the dominant cause of the observed global warming since the mid-20th century, which if you remember when that came out in 2017, 
the NASA study had a, I forgot what the name of their committee was, but they had a um, study they were doing into the effects of global warming, if it's a thing, if we're causing climate change. Shortly after that came out, Trump decided he's going to reduce funding for the program, but also that's whenever a lot of the things were coming out of Trump versus science and him saying, well, they're just wrong, that, you know, there's no proof of it. And they kind of hit on something similar. I think it was in this article. He was at a summit meeting, I guess, earlier this week. Was it was it the end of last week um, with some California people? He said he thinks things are going to get cooler sooner. And they said, well, that's not what the science says. And he said, well, I, I don't trust the science or, you know, I don't know about that. So, so it is a ongoing back and forth. But this is the second kind of government funded report that's come out backing that there is a cause to human influence that's causing global warming. And obviously, if we take initiatives to curb that, then we'll put a huge onus on companies, especially oil companies, to spend money to make changes. There, there was a lot that you shared that was good that I want to kind of ping into a few different things. So one of the first things that you said was something that I picked up in the article, which is about transition risk. That's not something I would have considered um, when it boils down to it. It's, hey, if we make changes too fast, too soon, that can be just as dangerous as making too few changes too late. So too fast, too soon could be just as bad as too little, too late. And that was something that was challenging to me in a good way. It's something that I hadn't considered because when we think of changes we want to see happen, um, or at least for myself, you think, well, we gotta, we gotta just act. We gotta go do this. We gotta be thoughtful, but we gotta do something. But, um, bringing in the, the thought that financially there has to be a process and we have to find a, a good pace so everybody can win essentially that, you know, you're talking about like what, what Trump's arguments are if he doesn't want to believe science and some people we know don't want to believe science. So what this article really meant to me was, or what really helped me with is pushing me to better meet people where they are. There are a lot of people who don't believe in the science for whatever the reason. Um, it doesn't have to make sense to us if that's their, their opinion, it's their opinion. And if they're in power, that can be dangerous. So when I looked at her, we look at it from the financial risk. We do know that that's going to matter a lot more to certain, to certain people than the science. So we can speak in terms of dollars and making people seem less popular or less financially sound. If that's, that's also a fact of the effects of global warming. If that's the argument we've got to start with, that's, that's fine too. You talked about the it's bipartisan-ish is what I've thought about it as, is three Republicans, two Democrats, like you said, put together by Trump. And like you said, all all voted unanimously to everybody who, who put time and effort into this report did vote unanimously that it be approved or that it be, um, what's the next step? It's like basically that it becomes a recommendation by the government because it's not there yet. It's not a recommendation. And you kind of mentioned the cost, like putting a real dollar to it. That article does cite a nature.com article that was titled Climate Value at Risk of Global Financial Assets. And they, they mention it in passing in the article that expected cost of climate change could be anywhere between, I think in the article they say 2 point something billion and 28 billion. I think those were the numbers. I don't have it in front of me. But that was 
really skewed. They really put it as a about 1.8% of the current global value of assets. So maybe it was in trillions um, is what's considered at risk because of climate change. So obviously when you look at the, that's in today's dollars. So that's not all going to happen right away. Kind of like you mentioned, you know, if you do too much too quick, that can be problematic. If you do too little too late, that's problematic. This is similar to the financial risk of, or, you know, the situation of 2008, 2009, it was invisible to most people. They didn't realize the risk was there of these mortgage-backed securities. And that's kind of what they go on to think about the climate value risk, is that this is an invisible risk that investors have and that companies have that's not really being disclosed. You talked about some companies are disclosing information on their financial documents, their 10Ks, I think, what they think their their risk is associated with this, but most don't. It's an interesting thing. The whole shareholder letter and communication with shareholders in the stock market, the goal is to provide shareholders with your realistic outlook for the company. Now, you don't want to be too pessimistic, but you also don't want to be too optimistic because if you oversell, then you can get in trouble with regulators. So it's a fine line to walk. So a lot of companies in the end just publish the reports and don't say anything with it. Famously, Warren Buffett puts out a letter every year that everyone in the stock market reads. That's his assessment of his company. It's and then kind of a, a general idea of what he thinks going on with the markets. He always puts out verbiage, but it's not a requirement. They don't have to say anything as a company leader. What do you mean by verbiage? Words. You know, he puts out a letter mm-hmm. kind of sharing his vision and what his thoughts are of the company. Companies aren't required to do that. They do it as a sign of good faith, but it is a risk. If they say something wrong, things don't pan out the way they thought they would, they can look bad. Also, if they don't disclose something that regulators then later be feel was important, they could be in trouble too. Those those situations don't come up often, but it's just easier for companies to say nothing. So you're going to see most companies will say nothing about their risk that they think they have with climate change. But a lot of companies are probably in the background managing that risk or trying to. It's expensive. They spend a lot of money on retrofitting equipment or changing on equipment. That looks negative to shareholders. They don't think they needed to. There's a lot that goes on in the background, but I, I think Companies think about it, but it's a hidden risk to investors. Potentially 1.8% of all assets out there are at risk. And that 1.8% is important, especially for pensions. They mentioned that specifically in the article, how this is a troubling thing potentially for pensions because this is an invisible risk that they're not accounting for, or at least the assets they're invested in may not be accounting for. And pensions are a big deal in the financial assets or the stock market. Pensions account for about $33 trillion in assets. And to put that in picture, the Dow Jones, which is the 30 companies, usually the 30 largest companies that are publicly traded, they account for $8.3 trillion. Apple is $2 trillion of that itself. Pensions account for about, what, 15, 16 apples? And Apple is the largest company in the world. There's a lot of money in the market from pensions. And traditionally, pensions were mostly put into stocks and bonds, and they were more in the blue chip stocks, stuff like Apple that they considered growth, but high dividend or decent dividend yield. So they're safe investments. Pensions have had a lot of trouble. They have to keep up with the earnings that they promised that, you know, the people who contributed to the pension and they've had to seek higher margins. That's caused them to go into riskier investments, such as real estate through what's called a a REIT, which is kind of a, a financial asset that you can invest in on the stock market and own shares of a company that owns a bunch of real estate. 
Did you say financial REIT? How do you spell that? REIT, it's R-E-I-T. Okay. So that's a common investment people use if they want to invest in real estate, but they don't want to own real estate. Okay. You can purchase shares of a REIT, which is a real estate investment trust. Anyways, they also invest into smaller stocks, private equity. Normally, they would only be in the biggest stocks, the safest stocks. So they're taking more risky investments. Private equity is more like putting private investments into companies versus going through the market and also investing into things like infrastructure. So traditionally, investments like your oil and gas, your um, electric companies, they were considered safe investments. It's not really mentioned in this article, but the wildfires are causing problem for those traditionally safe investments, such as real estate and infrastructure, because it's all burning down. And those are expensive to replace. You can't earn assets while an insurance company may pay to rebuild a building that's destroyed. You can't earn revenue on that building until it's rebuilt. So there is that downside. And then, of course, we're seeing utility companies potentially file bankruptcy because their power lines are destroyed. They're getting blamed with some of the fires. Uh, I think it was last year, a couple years ago, a lot of the wildfires were cited to be the Pacific Energy Company, that their lines potentially sparked like 17 of 21 fires. Oh, wow. So that puts a lot of liability on the companies. They could potentially fold. So all that to say, pensions are being more impacted by this, and they account for a large part of the market. Pension folding is a bad deal for the market in general, because that's a lot of money that's in there that could get pulled. So yeah, it's it's an invisible problem, similar to the financial crisis before, but this one won't suddenly crash. It's more, it'll eventually reveal itself over time, and people may be overvaluing their their uh, their holdings, their assets, and the return they're getting may not be in line with that. It's all finance mumbo-jumbo. Short way to say it is people are, have more risk than they may realize in their investments. So I think uh, there was a lot packed up in that. I learned quite a bit there. <laughs> we'll be Googling some terms and wanting to talk more with you about those in the future. What I would like to dig in a little more from based on what you're saying is the human component, because that was really wrapped up in a lot of what you were saying, the individuals and the, the communities that are going to be impacted by this. So a couple things that really stuck out to me, the well, there, there was a lot. So let me just think about this for a second. So first off, the article that we had, I think one of the things we're going to want to link is the the actual report that was put together. When the article was written, the report was going to be shared like a day or two later. It was written like a week ago, so it does exist now. I started to look into it yesterday. It's close to 200 pages, so I've not read it yet. But it is something that I'm interested in because I would imagine that, although not mumbo-jumbo, I'm going to use your your words, that this financial mumbo-jumbo to somebody like me who doesn't have that background, I'm really interested in reading that report to see what can I, what can I learn that doesn't make sense to me? Um, that didn't make sense to me because these things that you were talking about, the terms, how businesses are impacted, there are humans within those businesses. So it does matter to me in that way. Um, there were, like I said, a couple things. So one of the things you talked about was real estate. And that was something that pops up in the article, either the article or the report, because I was looking between both of them. And one of the things that pops up is climate change does have an impact on devaluing homes. So in this case of wildfires where homes are being destructed or destroyed in that way, that's pretty clear cut, pretty blunt or blatant. And they were talking about how when those homes, those neighborhoods are destroyed or even 
negatively impacted grossly that it affects local government's ability to raise money. You know, I I would imagine tax revenue, if there's more than that, property taxes. Yes. And thinking about that's something I wouldn't have thought of before. Like, oh, there are these people in these homes, education related to it, people who work in these communities. Um, But it's important to sometimes start from the macro, that big old space that you were talking about, to be able to think about how it impacts the individuals in that that whole set system. Yes, you don't think about it too often, these wildfires. Obviously, think of homes being destroyed, businesses being destroyed. Those can be replaced with insurance. You know, a lot of people have insurance on their business or their home for this kind of situation. As we mentioned before, it takes time to rebuild those. But in the meantime, the local government, you know, who needs to repair the roads and all the utilities and whatever else they need to do on their side, they're impacted because they can't generate revenue. You know, they're not going to build a tax the same in the devaluing of homes that does lower property tax, but you're not generating the sales tax and all the other taxes that you normally could generate because people aren't going to be able to live and work there in the same numbers they were before until it's rebuilt. Also, a large number of those people may decide to relocate. Interestingly, I couldn't find anything on this, but it doesn't seem like people really choose to relocate. They choose to mostly rebuild and redo these communities. Uh, Wildfires are nothing new in California. It seems like every year we see the photos. The one bright side of 2019, which everyone wished away until 2020 came, in 2019 was one of the lowest fires that we've had, at least acreage, uh, in like the last five or six years, but it was preceded by two very bad years. So I think it makes sense, you know, it seems like they alternate now between a very, very bad year and a, a less bad year because there's less opportunity to burn when everything's been burned down the year before. Yeah. It will impact local government. It impacts, obviously, schools. Schools rely on federal money, and the federal money is that they allocate to fighting fires, things like this. In a year like this, they're going to go extremely over budget, and they have to pull that money from someplace. Some will come from the federal government but not all of it. So then they have to reallocate the resources they have, creating further problems for schools, you know, who are already usually don't get the budget they're promised. Yeah. You mentioned, because that's where my mind goes to, you mentioned uh, California. We know that the, I think what feels different to a lot of people, including myself right now, is that the fires are beyond California, that they're Mm -hmm. in places we don't typically think, think about or, those of us who don't live in the West, like we're in the Midwest, aren't thinking about kind of a coast and our portions of a coast burning. And as you were sharing that, I talked about like uh, allocation for funding for schools. So one of the things I'll be really interested in keeping an eye on is the communities or the neighborhoods that had lower incomes before the fires. What does that look like to rebuild? What does that look like for the schools? Another thing you brought up that I'm curious about is how many prisoners are being used to fight these fires? Because we know that something happened, that's something that sometimes happens and they're paid very little money and it's very dangerous to do that. So a couple human component things that what you shared with me has, has me thinking about wanting to learn more about um, not related to this, but this is where this is kind of where these articles of of money meets human takes us is the what about what about that we can't cover in one episode, but for sure want to look more into. And of course, there's a side too I didn't mention. 
insurance covers your home if it's burned down or your business is burned down if you have insurance. Mm-hmm. One of the things too, you know, housing is very expensive in some areas of California, most areas of California. And the rest of the West Coast as well. And the rest of the West Coast, yeah. A lot of people don't have renter's insurance, so your personal belongings may just be gone if you're a renter. So that is going to create extra needs, you know, and people, a lot of people didn't have as much time as they thought they would to be able to, to leave, you know, they thought, oh, I got a couple of days, it's doing fine, and then they realized the fire's moved because the winds have picked up and it's been extremely hot this summer. There are definitely a lot of human components that are involved in the wildfires, but I would hope by now the cycle, California has it pretty well um, figured out. It's happened a lot of times. The other states like Washington and Oregon, they don't get them as often or as bad from what I understand. So like I think it was Washington, they had more acreage burned in one day than they had like in any of the last like 12 years. These have been pretty massive. When these things happen, these natural disasters anywhere that they happen, they always do cause like a an initial decrease in sales, growth, business in general, but they often lead to a sharp uptick as people start rebuilding, as businesses start reopening, they start the new hiring process again. There is like an ebb and flow that comes with it. Is there also like an influx because of the building materials and the labor? Yeah, so there's usually actually a spike in economic activity shortly after the, the natural disaster occurs, but then... It seems like the areas that are the hardest hit, they have the biggest spike, but then they have the largest drop-off again. Because once all the the stuff is done, everyone leaves, and now they're back to usually a lower economic level than they were before the fires. It can look good for the news stories, the warm and fuzzies, but people are still harmed a lot of the times, ultimately. Exactly. And I think when you mentioned the low-income side of it, you only have to look at the impact of Hurricane Katrina, because it hit a lot of you know, neighborhoods that didn't have as much assets and didn't have coverages in place because it was a flood. A lot of interesting stuff happened because the way insurance carriers handled that and the government decided that they needed to cover a lot of those claims. But you can still drive through massive areas of New Orleans and the areas haven't recovered because there was no money to rebuild it. And what they did rebuild was instantly devalued because if you rebuild your house but the four neighbors next to you don't, your house is not worth anything because you're only compared to what's in your neighborhood. Same for your business, rebuild it, but if the community's gone, your business is going to fail again. And to your point, using that hurricane as an example, there were a lot of uh, domestic, what you could call voluntourists, people who wanted to get the warm. Well, you know, I don't want to, not trying to um, attack their intent, but ultimately it resulted in them getting warm and fuzzies, going in, doing some buildups, leaving to go back to their parts of the country where they lived. And again, seeing this, this devalue where a lot of people I don't think necessarily would think about it through the lens that you shared because we hear those warm and fuzzy stories and it drops off. And if we don't live there, that's where the story ends for us. Yep. And I think that's where the episode ends for us today. Uh, this was a very finance heavy episode, but if you have any questions, comments, please drop an email to us at takingsocialstock at gmail.com. Otherwise, thanks for listening.